y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Southern gospel is a genre of music that you'd almost think never existed if you went by most musicologists' accounting of American music history. If you're not familiar with it, by my reckoning, it's a mixture of country, black gospel, English hymns, and barbershop quartet singing. Professionally, there's been hundreds of groups since the early 20th century, and the amateur groups number probably in the thousands. One such amateur Southern Gospel group that was active in the tri-state area of Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky during the 1960s and 70s was initially called the Collegiates and would eventually, after some personnel changes, become the Good Time Singers. One of the members, Ronnie Vaughn, met with me back by the woodpile to recount the boys' glory days of driving around and often breaking down throughout America to bring their brand of Southern Gospel music to congregations. Southern Gospel uh, started for me back in the, uh, I guess, the early to mid-60s. Many who hear this may remember the Gospel Singing Jubilee was was on TV. It was a Sunday morning broadcast. It had the Happy Goodman family. The Florida Boys. Called the Couriers from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. After each rainstorm, and a group called the Dixie Echoes. my first influences in the music of and that's what I call Southern Gospel. So growing up in your house was Southern Gospel the preferred music or is it something you discovered on your own? Uh, I grew up in a in a non-Christian home until I uh, started going to church through the with the influence of my sister my older sister and her husband started going to the Happy Goodman Family Church. Hired and Vessel pastored a church. When they first came to town, they were having church services in an old theater here. And so they... In, in Madisonville? In Madisonville, yeah. And they were just him and her. And uh, the, the guys were... The, Sam and Rusty wasn't involved with them at all. But anyway, that was where I got my conversion and got saved as a kid of, of almost 15 years old. And, and that was the influence, the only influence of music. I discovered music, let's just say, when I started going to church. Mm-hmm. And so I knew what the rock and roll, because I'd grew, grown up in that era, but uh, it, it wasn't really an interest to me. It didn't hook me, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I got exposed to what, uh, I call it the heart music, uh, of gospel music, uh, this heart and soul, if you will, uh, it, it grabbed me. I had heard and felt things I had never felt before and heard before. And again, the harmonies of some of the quartets and groups just absolutely took me back. I thought, I've got to do this. Uh-huh. I want to learn how to do this. The first group I ever heard is a, a live a quartet sing, if you will, was the Plainsman Quartet. Will the Lord be with me when I walk through the valley? Will he walk beside me? Will he hold my hand when it's time? And Rusty Goodman sang in that quartet at the time. Howard and Vestal had him here. They were here at the junior high school. And I drove up and saw this old nasty looking bus, but it had Plainsman Quartet on the side of it, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I thought, man, well, what am I in for? And again, my sister had invited me. But I'd only been saved a short time. And I, again, I was just green to the whole thing. And so I went in and I started listening to these guys. And they were they were doing it a, a different than most of the other groups were. Because they were throwing the harmonies in that I hadn't heard before. The chord structures that just intrigued me. Jordan. 
Couldn't read a note of music then or now, but <laughs> it 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 just did something for me, and it just grew from there. Rusty Goodman was a big influence on me, and because he mentored me to the grade, because he knew I didn't know anything about anything, but he was sort of getting himself back into doing it as a Christian. Back in those days, it was just an occupation for him. Mm -hmm. But when he finally had a conversion in his life, uh, he he knew what ministry was because he was raised that way. Mm -hmm. So when he got back into it, he put more of what was coming from his spirit and his heart. And but anyway, that's that and other people as well. But that's kind of the groundwork of where I started. So you stumbled across a little band called the the Collegiates, right? Right. Which I full disclosure, my father was in. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Brother Dave, I called him. So how did you discover them, or how did you meet them? You know, it, it, some of the fondest memories of my life, and I'm as I say, almost seventy years old. Some of the fondest memories of my life was those early years, when I was just enamored by the whole thing, and. Uh, it, it, I can almost taste it. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. But Clyde Wheeler and I knew each other because he had sung at my wife's mother's funeral. Clyde was an insurance man. He knew a lot of people. And back in those days, they worked a debit. They called on people, went in people's houses and collected money for their insurance. So he knew everybody. And so they, he knew my wife's aunts. And then, of course, in turn, when she, his, my wife's mother died, which were their sisters, uh, they had the influence of Clyde and got him to sing for it. And I, he plays worked, the piano as yeah, well. Yeah, Clyde. Right? Clyde was he cl played piano and sang, and so I knew Clyde, and we became friends in a remote way. But he was with the Collegiate Quartet at the time. They had heard about him through Don Watson, who used to be with the old Southlanders Quartet out of Henderson. Don was a tremendous musician, tremendous singer. He could have played with anybody, but chose to stay home and be more a regional type personality. Tremendous talent. Clyde was also a tremendous talent. Uh, but anyway, Steve Camp was with your dad and with Jim Loving and, and Richard Wilson. They had a, a person that was quitting the group. So they were begin to talk among themselves. We were got to hire another singer. And uh, we really want somebody that knows a little bit about it, and Clyde said, well, I know a guy in Madisonville that, that sings at the Goodman's Church, and said, I've done a funeral or two with him, and he can sing on pitch. Mm -hmm. He's a kid, but uh, and at the time I was uh, 18 years old. They were to sing in Owensboro in, in the month of January, and this would have been in 1967, I think it was. Clyde Collins said, hey, would you be interested in maybe try it out for the group. He, I said, well, I'd like to hear him sing, first of all, to see if I think I could blend in with them and get to know them and meet them and, and talk and, and maybe have a meal together and, and spend some time together and learn a little bit about each other. And so I went, and my wife, my, my son, my oldest son now, my 50-year-old son now, was a year old at the time. And so we came in, baby in arms, and it was slick and snowy the day we went. Very cold day we walked in. But when I drove up and saw that big flexible bus, 1947 flex bus it was. <laughs> <laughs> and they had the collegiates all the way down the side. Really cool, you know. Yeah. It was nice inside. But anyway, uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, they've got a bus. And that's I was taken back with that, too, you know. And then to go in there and sit down, and I, they were already singing, and they were started singing. They all had cufflinks on. I don't know if you remember, remember the era of cufflinks. And they all had matching suits, matching ties, and <laughs> and they and I was just saying, you know, I didn't have my mouth dropped open, but I thought, oh boy, this is gonna be fun. And so anyway, when it was over, we talked, and I sung one song with them, and they said, well, if you would like to be a member, you we'll like to have you. You could start going along, and you can kind of watch Steve do his part kind of learn the songs and so on and so forth.
explain to folks like the Cleavens were not on a label or anything like that. They were just independent selling records out the back of the trunk. So you know, speak. that's a good question. No, there weren't. Back in those days, music was political then as it is now. I don't think anything has changed in that. I think it's even worse today because there's a ton of groups out there that are really, really good, really good. And many can sing as good or better than the pro groups mm -hmm. who have made it, so to speak, uh, and, and are in demand and make, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars a night. Well, anyway, uh, no, they weren't on a, on a label. Uh, they produced their own records. As you grow and as you, you begin to hear things and you know what the way it's supposed to sound, you begin to hear. But they were just kids. We were just kids at the time. I was 18 when I joined them. So how'd they have their own bus? Uh, they had a guy there in town, Dave, your dad. Uh -huh. Your dad was a good mechanic uh -huh. and a tinkerer. Uh, yeah, he still is. And he made, he made everything work. And they had a gentleman there in town that sort of took them under his their wing, and I forget his name. He allowed them to park the bus there, and so he kind of kept it going for them. And I thought that was a neat thing because there's so many people in a little ministry like that, a little singing ministry like that. You have so many support people that you never hear about, but it helped you do what you did. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, they did, weren't on a label, but it was they recorded at Crusade Studios in Flora, Illinois. Uh, the infamous Ray Harris was in charge, and he had a group of his own, and so he helped a lot of groups get started with a with a budget-type album, and you could get a pressing. You would record this music there, and he would see that the music gets pressed on the album, give you a finished product, usually 500 with your session. At the time, you could do it for probably $700, $800. Mm -hmm. And it, it made it possible for us to have something to sell, make a little profit on, buy gas. Do you remember the first gig y'all had together? I sure do. Uh, I went with them several times. One of them was right here in Madisonville at a little uh, Pentecostal church out on Grapevine Road. I forget the name of the actual name. But his son, this particular pastor, his son was a, played for the Southlanders. He played bass guitar for the South. His name was Herb Campbell. So uh, Brother Campbell had us at his church, and it was on a Saturday evening. And I think that was the first song I sang with him. The song I tried out was a song written by Joel Hemphill of the Hemphills called Not in a Million Years. It was a really fast song. Goodman's did it too. It's just like riding a racehorse, you know. Oh, I'm going to travel more when I reach that golden shore. I'm going to travel over this world again, not in a million years. We should have slowed it down a little bit, but the, I did the lead on that. Just had a big old time. But they sang and I brought the house down, you know. So it was just fun, you know. That was one of the first. So as a group that wasn't well-known, like they weren't on the Jubilee and they weren't in the, the big things, when people came to see y'all, did they expect to hear songs that they knew already? Uh, somewhat. Did that now, frustrate y'all? It did, but it didn't. They often say you, you do what your audience wants. Mm -hmm. You give them what they want. And I think that's true to a degree, but I think you also give them something that they don't know about. All of us became songwriters eventually. I've written 20, 25 fairly good songs. I've probably written 50 terrible songs. <laughs> uh, I heard Larry Gallon say the other night on a program that we, we heard him do, he, he's, the first song he ever pitched to Dottie West, he said it was a horrible song. He said in retrospect, he said, I don't even know how, why I even thought I should say it. <laughs> so if he can write a bad song, so can I. But Clyde had, was, or began writing songs at that time, and had his first song was on the Collegiate album. Since Jesus Spoke, I think, is the name of that. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. We sort of intermingle our songs, and as we begin to sing our songs, it begins to mean something to the people we sing, which was a real neat thing to have happen, to create something that was yours that people yeah. liked. That was kind of neat. That's cool. And I want that album with your song on it. Bah, that was a good one. Wow. Yeah. So, but it took a while to get there. We had a following sort of uh, denominationally. We sang to a lot of Mennonite churches. Really? Yeah. I didn't know they had it in them. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, <laughs> 
Free Methodist churches, Nazarene churches, mm -hmm. big Nazarene churches. Of course, the Spear family were Nazarene. We sang one time in, uh, in Wisconsin at a Lutheran church. Didn't think Lutherans, but you could have skated on the floors because it was just that cold feeling inside because uh -huh. they just watched you so intently. And didn't tap their foot or didn't nothing? Didn't tap their foot or nothing. You couldn't stir nothing. You could, I don't think we could have stirred up dust if we had started <laughs> sweeping. But after it was over, they would come up to you because church was to be reverent. So I, I learned all my life uh, in gospel music to appreciate other denominations yeah. and appreciate the fact that everybody didn't have to be exuberant in their reception of what you did. And uh, But anyway, they'd come up and just shake your arm. I said, I'm sure, and they'd buy everything you had. Yeah. I guess the measure would be if they're not throwing rotten fruit at you or something. That's right, they, that's right. It must have went okay. Yeah, but that was the fun part of yeah. it. We were singing almost every weekend. Uh -huh. Uh, and we would we wouldn't hardly ever practice. We'd practice in the car or the bus where we go on the way. We'd run over something, or we would have get together one night during the week. And I'd drive it over to Evansville. We'd practice at Clyde's house, and we'd sing uh, maybe learn a few songs or something. Mm -hmm. But those first early years, it was just uh, nothing but fun. I'll soon be leaving for the great camp meeting over on the other side. I'll pitch my tent by the river of life when I cross the great divide. No taps will sound for the people on the ground will never move away. I've checked my gear, I'll soon be leaving here for the great camp meeting day. We had uh, some embarrassing moments. For example? I won't even mention the denomination we sure. were in, okay? Uh, this was in Evansville. The way our weekends went, I would drive to Evansville on a Saturday morning, we'd load up, and it was usually just the men because we were doing too much to take your girls or your girlfriends or your wives with you, or your kids for that matter. Uh, then we would drive to where we were to sing on Saturday night. Then we, we'd probably stay with the pastor, and then we'd drive to our Sunday morning home and get up really early. And then sometimes we had a Sunday afternoon in the same church that we were at that morning, but sometimes it was yet another church that we'd have to tear down and set up in on Saturday after Sunday afternoon and also Sunday night. So we'd do four dates, and could be four church dates, and it could be 50, 60 miles apart, which is a grueling day, but yeah. we just had the time of our life. But anyway, we were singing a Sunday afternoon in Evansville. Now, you have to understand, and I think you do, people listening might not understand, but gospel groups and the country groups, for that matter, back in the day, sold their own product. There were no uh, marketing arms to promote people of unknown stature, which we were. And even the, the well-known groups carried their own records with them and their songbooks and sheet music. So it was a big deal when we got our song in sheet music form. We could actually sell our song copy. Songs that you had written? Yeah, oh. we'd written. We thought, man, this is cool. Mm -hmm. So we made it available, or we, when we went into a church, we'd ask the pastor, where would you, where can we set up our records? And usually it was in the vestibule, in the lobby, or wherever. But at this particular church, didn't have a lobby. We just kind of walked in the door, there was kind of a windbreak, and then you walked right into the church. This particular pastor, who was the pastor, by the way, he said, well, just set them up back in the back of the church. In this particular denomination, we had an agreement with the pa all the pastors in the whole region that we sang in. And we sang in hundreds and hundreds of churches in, in the tri-state area in southern Illinois, southern Indiana, and Kentucky. And we stayed busy. We just had about big time, as I said. But... One denomination did not believe in selling products on Sunday, okay? But we had an agreement with the pastors and that we would set our stuff up. And we noticed one of the gentlemen was really huffy. You could tell he was mad while he was sitting there huh. in the church. And the church was full. While you were playing. Yeah, I could tell something was wrong. I was just afraid something's going to hit the fan just any minute. <laughs> and so Jim did his, we usually did a little bit of a breather uh -huh. after we sang about six, seven songs. He would get his our albums out and begin to say, here's here's our product. We've got our, uh, the song. one of the songs we just did is on this album. One of the songs is this. We had about two or three albums at the time. About that time, that gentleman stood up and said, we're not allowing that to take place in our church. Yeah. And the pastor got up and he said, 
you're out of order. These boys aren't selling their product today. They're showing you their gospel music that they've recorded. And you can pick out what you want, leave them here, pick them up during the week, then I'll send them the money. That's the way we do it. Uh -huh. And he said, if you're offended by that, you're easily offended. <laughs> wow. And he, he went on to argue with the pastor. Really? He said, it's Jesus threw the, the money changers out of the temple. And I think it's sacrilege to have people bring things in to sell in the church. It's just against the Bible. He said, well, I'll tell you, this was the pastor speaking. He, I love this man to this day. <laughs> he had such wit and charm, but he handled it the way, surely the way Jesus would have done it. He said, sir, if you're going to hold that strictly to Scripture, then you shouldn't have driven to church. You probably stopped to get gas. And if you did, you sinned. Whoa. And he went on to say, and don't go out to eat. He said, when you get up on Sunday, you walk to church and you walk back. And then when you get home, don't do anything. Don't straighten up anything in the garage. Don't do this, don't do that. And he shamed that guy so badly, he sat down, didn't say another word. Wow. He didn't say anything harsh to him. Right. But he just told him flat out the way it was. We were just absolutely mortified. How do you follow that up? How what what song? <laughs> but... But honest to goodness, Tim, we did. We he, now he he said I almost said his name. He said, "Now, boys, I want you to finish telling about your records, and that's the way any folks want them." He went on to spiel again. Anyway, uh, he said, "And and I want you to sing some more, just like you was getting ready to." So we took a deep breath. Yeah. It was our first encounter with what I felt like was just a little bit harsh interpretation of what scripture was mm -hmm. as it relates to today's world mm -hmm. and one other thing he went on he said this is the way these boys buy gas to put in their vehicle this is the way these boys get from place to place he said, they don't make any money but we don't give them enough in the offering they usually give us maybe 50 60 dollars but he said they can make another 50 or 60 dollars on the profit of the records and it can let, allow them to continue to do this right. And I appreciated that. They'll be shouting on the hills of glory. Shouting on the hills, yes, shouting on the hills. When we reach that land of which we've heard the story, they'll be shouting on the hills of God. Okay, so we've heard a little bit of intense stories. What were some of the highlights for you? I'll share with you one of the most heartwarming things that happened to us as a group was this. I think we had sung for this gentleman in southern Illinois, a little town called, um, oh goodness, I can't think. I'll think of it in a minute. Brother Belcher was his name, and I think they were free Methodist. And they were a small congregation. I couldn't understand how they would want us to come, but because they were so small. We would always come for a morning service, and we would sing for that, and there might be 20, 25 people there have lunch with the pastor, and then we'd have a two o'clock sing. And then the people from all around came. And a lot of these people were Mennonites. They came with their little hair pieces and all. And they were very reserved as well. But I'm telling you, they patted their feet. <laughs> they really did. And, and they would come to anywhere we were in a 50, 60 mile radius. Mm -hmm. Wow. If it was an afternoon sing, we would have a church full. And here's the way they did it. This is when we were the Good Time Singers. They had what they called the Good Time Singers Fund. They had a little coin church people could stick bills in. And they saved all year long to have us. Wow. Or that they could pay us what we needed to have. And I thought that was the most meaningful thing. Well, it touched me. I, sure. I, just, I just almost cried. Right. That they felt so good about wanting to take care of us. Mm -hmm and make it worth our while. Well, we would have went for nothing. And a lot of times we did. We had pastors that had no idea how to handle it. And we would just lose money. We'd right. spend our own money to go. Right. But, you know, the next time they would understand. Because Jim, after the service, would explain to them, the only way we do this is not because we're rich. It's because we have people that enjoy what we do, believe in what we do. It's a ministry to us. And we just... We need at least, at the time of it was fifty, sixty dollars, you know, just to make it worth our while. Jesus.
We were in Detroit, Michigan, back when we first went full-time, Clyde, Jim, and I, and became the Good Time Singers. And uh, we had had a horrible, horrible week. We had a secretary at the time that just, to spite one of us, she didn't send our advertising packet out. In those days, they couldn't go on the internet and download a right. brochures. We sent in the mail uh, posters, and it was a reminder to the pastor because we sent it to him a month ahead of time uh -huh. so that he could remember that he had booked us. For one whole week, we got to a church's and the lights weren't on. We had driven up into Michigan, and it was we'd spent two days just about driving up, and there's nobody there, and we had that happen three times. And it was it was devastating. Nobody came because they didn't know we were going to be there. Oh, it was an off night. Yeah, it was oh. terrible. Terrible to say the least. We, we fired the lady. but uh, and, and the way we did it when we were full-time, we made our expenses on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then Sundays was where we made our paycheck. And so we got to this Detroit church, and it was in the heart of mafia country. Wow. And the pastor told us that on the telephone, and he had met us at a, a minister's conference where he booked us, and he was just a great guy. But anyway, we were there for a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, all day at his church. You know, we may have had shiny seats on our matching suits, but we never acted like we needed money. We always acted like we were on top of the world. I mean, we never told anybody any issues that we had. And in the night service, the pastor, he got up and he said something really strange. He said, Folks, he said, uh, the Lord has really been dealing with me because I feel like these boys really need an extra special gift from this church. And he said, I'm not telling you what they need because I don't even know what they need. They may not need nothing, but I feel like that, that we need to do something extra special for them. And he took an offering. And after the service was over, we were getting ready to go home and not have anything to split up and take home. <laughs> And we had bills uh, at home. But uh, he handed us a $2,500 check. Yeah. And in those days, that was like a $10,000 check to us. It was back in the early 70s. So, And it uh, was more than adequate. It helped pay our bills, plus it gave us a, a paycheck with that. And we've learned a lot through that. There's people out there that are sensitive to what God wants them to do. Yeah, I'll tell you what it did for me, Tim. It gave me a, a heart for ministry being a support for ministry now that I'm older and, and hopefully a little wiser, but if there's an evangelist or singers at our church, I give them more than I would ever would otherwise had not I not been through circumstances sure. such as that. So I could probably go on for the rest of the night uh, telling you highlights. We got to sing with the Oak Ridge Boys. The, now, was this the version of them that had the lineup they have now? The Oak Ridge Boys was Dwayne Allen. William Lee Golden, the guy with the big beard now. Yeah. Back in those days, he was clean shaven. We first learned how to use hairspray on our hair. Uh -huh. Your dad did the same thing. Uh -huh. Through a group called the Couriers and through the Oak Ridge Boys guys like that, they begin to style their hair. They'd wash it, and while it was dry, they'd comb it, and they'd spray hairspray on it. Mm -hmm. This may be an interesting tidbit on, to share. <laughs> I don't know. may not be. But anyway, we sang in McLeansboro, Illinois. Uh, and we were opening act for the Oak Ridge Boy. We thought, boy, we were hot and heavy. <laughs> so we get on, sing our little stuff, and we realized that the crowd was not there to see us. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and so the, the lineup at the time was William Lee Golden. Um, they called him Bill Golden at the time. Uh, Dwayne Allen, Noel Fox, Willie Wynn, and Tommy Fairchild was on the piano. But anyway, it was big stuff for us. We got to sing with the Happy Goodmans. We got to, hey, I'll tell you one thing that was really a highlight for us, too. Uh, we were the Good Time Singers at the time, and we formed our own little Gaither homecoming group, if you will, called the Camp Meeting Singers, and the, the, uh, there was another group, I forget, the name leaves me, and ourselves. We were a threesome, and we'd all sponsor each other groups in, and we'd do kind of an entourage of our own individual music and then sing as a group at the end. And people really loved it. One time, through that connection, we got to sing in northern Illinois somewhere, and we opened for Andre Crouch and the Disciples. Wow. Yeah. Everything changed. Man, 
You're talking about rocking. Yeah. Couriers were there, and I think the Cathedral Quartet was also on the wow. bill. Uh, some of the groups were very cordial and would take you under their arm and be nice to you. Glenn Payne with the, with the cathedrals changed clothes with us in the dressing room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you've seen him in his undies? Yeah. And he was he was just nice, with nice, just a nice guy. Yeah. He was just talking, you know. I was impressed by that. They were big. They weren't as big as they got, but they were really big. I, if I learned anything, it was to be an encourager and go around to those groups who really didn't harmonize as well, <laughs> who really was trying with all their heart, but that you knew they were probably Couldn't find the notes never going to make it. Yeah. But maybe with a little encouragement would help them. You know? right. And I learned to be an encourager if I didn't learn to be right. anything else. I've been on the mountain, I've seen the other side. I've been on the mountain and my soul is satisfied. Now, do you remember any memories of actually recording those records? Yeah, I do. We, we took this picture. Uh, was it a little dab? Yes, at the studio above Risley's. They had a music store downstairs, but upstairs they had a studio of a sort. And we come to find out that they didn't know a bit what they were doing more than the man in the moon. <laughs> and for folks they are not from the Tri-State area, Risley's was an audiovisual place. Yes, they were. It was a big deal. This is before the big box stores and all that. That's exactly right. And if you wanted to buy a TV or a, a stereo set, as yeah. we called it. Or color there, TV, even. Then that's where you went. Someone said they got a pretty good studio. And uh, we went up and we worked probably about six or seven hours up until the morning on a Friday night after work, and I was whipped. But And we all were tired because we all worked in those days and sang, too. We were and part, didn't do drugs, so probably. Didn't do drugs, that's it's right. hard so, to stay awake. So, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> we weren't getting anywhere. Nothing worked. Either the, the mix was wrong or the guy, the engineer, was not getting it down. Oh, we got to do that again. Back in those days, it was a one track, one take, a big reel. And if you made a mistake, you started all over. And uh, we started all over a bunch. <laughs> and, and sometimes it was our fault, and sometimes it was engineer's fault. We just got so frustrated. But we did get all those pictures that night in the sort of a dimly lit uh, studio. It was really moody in there. Uh -huh. You know, we thought, boy, we so were that's being, the only thing good that came out of it. That's the only picture. thing good came out of that. We took the same songs, went back to Crusade at Flora, Illinois, and recorded it. And it was I won't say rinky dink because. Everything was rinky-dink in those days. Uh, it was a one-track also. And we'd usually spend, this is unheard of in today's recording, where groups leisurely walk in and they leisurely spend three hours and they go sleep uh, 12 or 14 hours or go out and party and then they come back and do it again. We started recording and we recorded till we finished the album. So 12 songs were recorded in probably 10 or 12 hours. And we would break for a sandwich, come right back and start again. It may have been the reason why we were as bad as we were at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but we were doing the best we could with the energy that we had. And we did that for years. We, we Back when we were recorded in Oklahoma City at Benson Sound out there as the Good Time Singers, we did four albums there. And every time we'd drive hard and heavy after we got off from work on Friday night, all the way to Oklahoma City, we'd get there, we'd spend the night, what night was left of it, and sleep three or four hours, go in and record from 10 in the morning to 2 or 3 in the morning, or till we got through. Wow. It was it was a marathon. Right. But in retrospect, I think we did pretty good. Yeah. But w what was really cool about Larry Benson's studio in, in uh, Benson Sound, Oklahoma City, is he had a four-track recorder. Listen, you didn't have to start all over again. He could splice tape and punch in. We thought, whoa. <laughs> so we thought we'd really arrive. Bleeding Sims Valley. Bleeding to Calvary. Bleeding to that land so Well, let's talk about the transition from the collegiates to the good time singers. So how did that go down? Well, it, it went down because Steve Gerbig had been in the Army. He was in the reserves, I believe, and he was on active duty for quite a while. This is during the Vietnam era? Right? I think it was, yeah. yeah. And so he was out when they recorded that, and Clyde, and I believe they sang as a trio. I believe your dad had to sing baritone on that, some of the stuff. Yeah. I may be wrong on that, but uh, anyway, 
when I came to the group, I didn't sing a high lead myself, and I was replacing Steve Camp, who was the lead singer. So Steve Gerbic became the lead singer, and I became the baritone singer, which I was comfortable doing. And then Jim, and so we sang as a trio. Clyde didn't sing, but he would sing a special every once in a while and play, and people loved it. And so we knew he could sing and, 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 and play at the same time, which not a lot of people can do that and do it well. So when the guys, Steve Gerbig and your dad, I think did drop out, we looked at each other and said, well, there's three of us left. So I guess we're gonna have to be a trio or hire somebody else. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we got to singing and we got to blending and we were able to do the harmonies we wanted and uh, we thought, well, let's just leave it a, th a threesome. At the time, several other groups that we knew, like the Couriers that I mentioned earlier, they were a trio because they had di digressed from a quartet down to a trio. And, you know, the fewer in the group, the fewer problems you've got. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Fewer you have to pay. That's right. But anyway, uh, that transition went really smooth and was really accepted by the crowds that we had been going to. And we sort of ventured off and started booking further away dates. Mm -hmm. And it was nothing for us to leave on a Friday night and be gone all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and get home in time to go to work on Monday morning. Now, the, the Good Time Singers, you recorded at Benson Studios, mm -hmm. which is a, a Christian record company. Still exists today. Yeah. Conway Twitty did all his music. Every recording he ever did was at Benson Sound. Really? Larry Benson was his drummer and keyboardist for a long time. Christ can give a song of hope and not despair. Christ can take your gloom away. He can make you sing when your skies are gray. All your clouds will fade away. So the Good Time Singers were, were quite a bit more serious. Like you guys were trying to do this professionally, right? Yeah, we we were begin to sing with some of the big groups and hold our ground on the stage with them, you know. And then we realized, uh, and we, we were okay with it. As I say, the politics of gospel music were not inclusive to new groups unless one of the big names discovered you and wanted to get a piece of the action of what you made them. Well, explain that. They wanted to sort of own you. There was a lot of songs that some of the well-known writers of that day well, I, I'll just say it because yes, Rusty Goodman's first song, I knew the little guy that inspired him. He came to church and he, he would get up and make a testimony in that world bibbed overalls. I was a kid, as I said at the time. And, and he would always end it and said, I wouldn't take nothing but my journey now. Yeah. And Rusty heard that and he said, man, I believe there's a song. There. He's offered everything that's got a name all of the world. His name is he was in Madisonville, Kentucky, and his group, the Plainsmen, sang uh, on a lot of Governor Jimmy Davis, the governor of Louisiana at the time. Yeah. Governor Jimmy Davis wrote, you are my sunshine, right. my only sunshine. I think he wrote it. He told us, he said, yeah, I'll take your song and I'll publish it and I'll promote it, but I want to be co-writer. Common in that day. Yeah, there was another well-known bass singer that did the same thing. But that was really the only way they'd discover anybody is if they had a little talent. We didn't see to have too many people like that. Rusty saw something in us and helped us. Do you think they could have just took a portion of the publishing? I think that, but many of them wanted to be co-writers on your hits. To get songs. just get credit. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And to get to make money. Well, I get that. That was sort of startling to me. I just yeah. I couldn't believe it in Christian music that that was the way it was done. But that's the way it was done. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't long Rusty began to write more songs than he published his own because mm -hmm. they had an audience that they'd built of their own. Right. I mean, I, I get when someone takes a chance on you, they should get a little something. But to, to kind of lie and say that they wrote the song with you. That was just the way it was done. Right. Especially when you didn't have legs to stand on, sure. so to speak, yeah. and, and be a part of the, the yeah. cliques. But the politics of music was... You didn't even get booked. We just happened on to a lot of some of the bookings that we got. Mm -hmm. Rusty would put in a good word for us. Well, when we would open for these groups, almost every one of them, we would always say, we can't hear ourselves. Monitors are really important. In those, sure. They were in those days and still are today. People have the earphones. And we knew that people weren't hearing it either. It seemed like the whole thing was turned down. My wife would always say, you guys were so much lower than everybody else whenever they came on. Obviously, the sound man wasn't your sound man. No. The sound <laughs> man was the big name group that we were with. And then 
when they say, and here they are, the so-and-so, <laughs> then it would be sound as big as Dallas. Oh, man. It's, did y'all ever try to confront, or did you just have to let it go? You were just lucky to be on the program. Yeah. Man, that's a bummer. <laughs> so it was a bummer, and but if they had turned us up, the crowd might have liked us as much. And I'll tell you what, this, this happened. Jake Hess, when he retired from the Statesman, he started singing with his family group and had some health problems and didn't do much of that, and then he did a lot of it. And then he, he thought, well, I've got a niche to fill. I've got a lot to offer, a lot to say. And so he took, there was a guy by the name of Ronnie Page, who was a big quartet man for years, sang with one of the Oak Ridge Boys groups during the old era. And then he had his own group called, he sang with the Rangers trio for a while, with David Reese and another guy. And then Ronnie Page started a television program at noon on WLAC TV Channel 5, a local program that took recorded tapes of first videos, mm -hmm. tapes of gospel groups, and he would say something, talk, promote something, advertise whatever, and play videos of groups. Well, Jake Hess took that program over when Ronnie decided to do something else. Well, anyway, I'll tell you what, Jake... He treated everybody the same. Jim contacted him and said, Jake, he said, Rusty Goodman told us to call you. And he said that you might, if we did a professional television produced, TV station produced a series of our songs, that you might just accidentally play them. <laughs> yeah. And he said, sure enough, I will. He said, I like to promote young groups. We recorded Channel 7 in Evansville, and we pantomimed our records. Our best songs. We did about six songs. Spent a fortune on it to get this big old reel of tape, TV tape. I think it cost us about $350, $400 to do it. But anyway, we sent that big reel, took it down there, Jim did. And you know Jake would play us about once a week, and he said, and here's that group called the Good Time Singers that you guys have been asking for. I think they do a pretty good job. He'd always build us up, you know. I got to watch that on TV a few times. And I, I really appreciated that because he didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. He wasn't making a dime from us. He was trying to promote music, gospel music at the time. And that was a guy that was the biggest of bigs. He's huge, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elvis Presley loved him. Exactly. Yeah. There's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery coals they trod. And the form of the fourth man I see is like the Son of God. It wouldn't be me. They held them to the will of God, so we are told. Of the songs that you wrote for the Good Time Singers, like, what are some of the ones that you're the proudest of? I wrote a song called um, Why Calvary. Uh, that was a song that I was proud of. I redid it. I've redone it twice and re-recorded it with my son playing guitar on it and, and sort of did a ballad type thing. I did put a feel to it that I wanted, finally got it. It seemed like when you're recording a song, the people who play on your record try to put themselves into your record. Sure. And I can understand that. But they took us out of our element sometime because they made it sound like that's not the way we sing it. Mm -hmm. And we tried to tell them this is not the way we want it done. We had a guy even tell us one time, a big shot. He said, well, if you want to do it wrong, it's just fine with me. Oh, man. And we were paying him to do it. <laughs> And if I told you who it was, you'd, you'd know who it was. It uh -huh. doesn't matter who it was. Uh -huh. But we were paying him big bucks to uh -huh. do what we wanted him to do. Right. We said, well, we'd rather be in We're paying you. We'd rather you do it. And he was bulled up the rest of the session. And we made the worst record we ever made. <laughs> he, he sabotaged? Lost the spirit. Yeah. Worst feeling yeah. in our hearts. We produced some pretty good songs. And all it was about was slowing tempo down to a stop. Uh -huh. And then let us do a a little acapella thing and then they kick back in. It worked out great yeah. after he did what we asked him to do. <laughs> but see, that that was what we were warring against because we didn't know anything to carry them right. down. You know. yeah. but, uh, oh, why the needless pain Jesus had to go through Then in the end he gave his life for me what love that reached down for such a soul like me. Oh, Jesus really loved us. That's why Calvary. He's all I'll ever need. We got to do that with the last album we ever did, the uh, Take Time to Love the Lord album. We did that in Oklahoma City. 
Larry Benson got six or eight pieces of the Oklahoma City Symphony that would come in his studio and they would put brass on it, put violins on it. All I want is him, all I need is him, all I know is him. I would trade all I own for a touch from his throne, so much to me. Jim's song, I'll take a little more of that. Yeah. Man, it's it great. It yeah. kicked, I think. Now, they, you said that he didn't originally want to record that no, song. No, he didn't. Yeah, he wrote it. He said, I don't I don't even like it. He said, and he sang it, and we got to playing. Clyde was playing it, and it changed keys about seven times. <laughs> and we, we ended it in the stratosphere. And Larry Benson got a hold of it, and he said, man, I love this thing. Uh-huh. He said, and he just put everything with it. If that's what you call old-fashioned brother, I'll take a little more of that. And uh, it was just bigger than the world, we thought. And uh, we were so proud of it. It came off great. One of the most favorite songs of, uh, that we did in person was that song. And that was back in the days before we did use soundtracks. Uh, we just did it with a piano. Oh, wow. And that was a, a good trick. All right. Because that song really depends on the strings a lot. Uh, I know it. Yeah. But they put those touches on it that I wish we could have done a, in performance but uh, when we sang it. But yeah. Clyde did different fills, and he really was talented to make it work. It was an old-fashioned meeting in an old-fashioned place Where some old-fashioned people had some old-fashioned grace So eventually, you guys, I guess, called it quits. Yeah. At the end there, we were doing about 300 days a year mm-hmm. that we were going from home. And as a, as a man that was, at the time, I was about 27 years old, 26 years old. I told him on one night we were coming home, I said, guys, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. It's tearing me apart. My wife was dying at home, you know, just literally dying because the kids was always sick. My son Tim was sick with pneumonia, almost died while I was on the road. My youngest son, when he was born, had a terrible hernia that had to be repaired, and then he had it fixed, and two months passed, he had to have the other side, a major surgery for a kid, a baby, and we were starving too. Yeah. My wife told me one time, she said, and she didn't tell me this until after, but I knew we were hurting financially. But anyway, we'd never had more fun in our life, but we weren't making a living for our family. We were singing at a McDuff Brothers, Roger McDuff, John McDuff, and Coleman McDuff. They were a tremendous group of Christian men that sang. I had a lot of respect for them, and all of them were preachers as well as singers that sang the, they sang with tears in their voice, you know what I'm saying? Uh, But anyway, we were doing a camp meeting in Denver, Colorado. When you hadn't been home in 30 days, and we'd go out for 30, 47 days at a time, you know, never go home again until it was almost a month or more. It's just too much for a family month. I think it was. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I'd never do it again that way. But anyway, I was back at our record table and John McDuff came up and he was a big hero of mine at the time. I just loved the brothers as they sang the McDuff brothers. He came up to me and was talking. I said, John, I said, I'm dying right now. And he said, what's going on? And he said, I said, I'm torn between what I'm doing and what my family needs at home. My wife is, is, is as discouraged as I've ever been. My boys have been sick, been in the hospital. She's just having a tough time and trying to make it on what I make. And he said, Ronnie, let me give you a bit of advice. And I speak from experience. He said, I've had a son that had a drug problem because I wasn't at home. And he said, I'm home more now. He said, if I had to do it again, I would spend less time on the road, more time at home. And I would try to meld my music and my ministry into something that would fit into the family schedule rather than having the family schedule fit. It was all I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. He said this, he said, if you lose your family and gain the world, it's not worth it. Right. And he said, I know that now because mm-hmm. he lost his son. And on the trip home, we were pulling somewhere close to Evansville, pulling in. I said, guys, I can't do this anymore. And it just 
well, what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just had, to, I said, y'all know I've got so much stuff going home right now, it's just not working. Well, okay. I guess we'll just have to fold it up and quit. We've quit as a threesome, but Jim had it going in, in less than three or four months. But Clyde and I both quit. Clyde was feeling the same thing because he had two children at home too. Uh, but anyway, my wife told me after I quit the road, she said, I was going to have to ask you to do that because we, there was one time, there was one time that the boys were hungry. And all I had left was some frozen waffles. And had we not had a, a little potluck at the church that Sunday, that particular Sunday that she was just out of money and out of things to eat, then the boys wouldn't have had anything to eat other than those waffles. Wow. And so it was sort of a confirmation to me that God used me for a time. Mm -hmm. We had seasons in our life. Sure. And I felt like that. I know I was doing what God wanted me to do at the time, but there was that season ended. I guess maybe I was tone deaf, perhaps. Maybe God was had told me that from time to time, impressed upon me, if you will, uh, don't do it this way. I didn't hear the still small voice, right? But I heard it, and I, I think I did the right thing. And but I've still contributed in the way that I can. I sing some solo stuff, not as much as I want to do, mm -hmm. but I do as much as I can. And uh, I'm still recording, I'm still gonna do some more recording, and uh, hoping that when I have some retirement time, I can do a little bit more of that. Gotta tell you how he died for me, on Lonesome Calvary, come on. If you'd like to shoot Ronnie a line, you can reach him by email via ronnie at happies.com. That's R-O-N-N-I-E at H-A-P-P-Y-S dot com. And if you're in the market for some office furniture, Ronnie can help you with that as well. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguide.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. And if you'd like to help out in the cornerback by the woodpile, you could become a patron by clicking on our Podbean page and by clicking the icon that reads Patron. Or you could be a sponsor or underwriter or an advertiser, any of that stuff, by emailing us via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We've had a few donations roll in recently, and on the next episode, we're going to mention them by name and make them feel like they finally have done something worthwhile in their lives. I believe my Lord is coming back again.